The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Megan Keoghan, host of today's episode and head of partnerships here at Provoke. Trauma's impact is being felt across the globe as communities deal with the aftershocks of the pandemic, social justice issues, and environmental events amidst the financial uncertainty and communities of color are impacted disproportionately. Ketchum has assembled a panel here today to discuss the growing impact of trauma on schools, organizations, workforces, and communities with a focus on the unique needs and challenges in community of color. Recently, Ketchum made a commitment to become trauma-informed and address the issue head-on in the agency and for its clients. This panel will demonstrate how building trauma-informed teams, programs, and tools will help at this time of growing need and change, and particularly how it can support the underrepresented students, families, and communities. So with us today, we have a great panel uh, compiled by Ketchum for us. So we have Jim Joseph, Ketchum's Chief Executive Officer of the U.S. and Global Chief Marketing and Integration Officer. Jim recently led Ketchum's commitment to becoming a trauma-informed organization. Dr. Ebony Copeland serves as the director of Howard University Student Health Center and as assistant professor in the Department of Community and Family Medicine within the College of Medicine. Her background includes extensive work with the community in reproductive health care and in bringing awareness to health disparities. And we have Michelle Baker, Managing Director and EVP of Strategic Initiatives at Ketchum. She has led the trauma-informed curriculum and offering. Thank you all for being here. Sorry, Jim, for interrupting you. I didn't mean to to cut you off there. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So let's see here. Let's dig in um, and we'll hear a little bit about everybody's background and and what's bringing them to the table today um, in these first couple of questions. But Jim, it was really interesting to learn about Ketchum's work to become trauma-informed. Would you share some of the details that this journey and um, the insights about the process, what you've learned getting to this point and why Ketchup took this on. Absolutely. This is the brainchild of Michelle Baker. She came to the executive team literally just a few months ago, and I became an executive sponsor of it, and we ran with it because we realize very much so around the world, in our local communities, and even as individuals, the upsets that continue to go on are not going to stop. And they have a direct impact on who we are, how we work, how we form relationships, and basically how we carry on in our life. And the notion of being trauma-informed is actually something that exists in other industries and in other sectors. And we realized as a communications consultancy that we should become trauma-informed as well, and we should help our clients become trauma-informed. But one thing that Michelle pointed out as we started to think through the concept is that we have to start with our own people first. If we're going to consult with our clients and help them become trauma-informed and help infuse that thinking in all that they do, that we first have to become trauma-informed. We have to help our own people to understand what's going on in the world and how to navigate it and how to look at their work through that lens. So we started by training 
key leaders across the agency. Uh, we're starting to roll it out throughout the entire agency, and we've been presenting it to uh, many of our, our biggest um, clients so that they can start to think through how they want their people to become trauma-informed and how it should affect and influence the work they, they do. So I love that you use the word journey because it is a journey. Uh, we are developing it and launching it kind of in, in, uh, in motion. Uh, and tweaking it, improving it, and getting it to a good place so that our people are uh, very well-versed, helps them deal with their own issues even at work or, or in their life, and then we can then consult with our clients. Fascinating. So really a two-phase process that uh, has learnings on both both ends and, and constantly evolving. Um, Michelle, trauma is such a loaded term. Uh, in fact, trauma has become more mainstream in our discussions and conversations, and it's a part of everybody's conversations due to just what we have gone through in the world. Um, to ground us today for some foundation of this episode, would you give us um, a working definition of trauma and what it inspired you to architect this particular offering? Yes, thanks, Megan. So as Jim mentioned, the world events have, have weighed on us all heavily. Um, they've shifted our mindsets. Uh, they've redefined needs in the workforce, schools, communities. Um, and as you've noted, more and more people are sharing information about their personal traumas. People are seeing it more on the news, on social media. It's a top Google search. It reaches the tops of the bestsellers list. Um, but not all stress and not all stressful events qualify as trauma. So it's really important to be deliberate about that definition. Um, we define trauma um, at Ketchum and in the work we're doing as a psychological harm that affects our performance. Um, and as Jim mentioned, that can arise from array of causes, violence, racism, bias, harassment, even political divides um, and, and financial downturns uh, can, can turn into trauma. Um, and we've seen the sad reality that communities of color have borne the weight um, of the negative effects of things like the pandemic, social justice, financial downturns. And so it's really important to, to focus on communities of color and marginalized communities first when we talk about trauma. Um, I was first introduced to the concept of trauma awareness uh, when I volunteered as a tutor for a literacy program in Washington, D.C. Um, that's in Ward 7 and 8. And as part of that program, I had the opportunity to be trained in in, in trauma awareness. Um, and it really helped me um, not only in my, my work as a tutor and a volunteer, but also the work that I do in public health. Um, it was the height of the pandemic, um, and as part of the training, they grounded us with most of the students that, and families that we were interacting with had lost a loved one who lived in the home or was a direct caretaker for the students that we were working with at such a disproportionate um, ratio to the what you know national averages of people who had lost loved ones. So that coupled with the insecurity, domestic violence rates, unemployment, really helped provide the right entry point and empathetic insight that was needed from day one to be focused and deliberate about outcomes. Um, we know to make progress that it's really important to understand trauma in education, academics. Um, that's key to anything where trauma-informed organizations are rolling out. Absolutely. And so, Dr. Copeland, that brings us to you. These past few years have been especially traumatic for people of color in marginalized populations. We've seen a lot of that play out on college campuses, particularly at historically black colleges and universities. Have you seen the impact with students and families at Howard and other HBCUs? 
Um, yes, yeah, so we've definitely seen the impact of trauma at Howard, other HBCUs within the student, faculty, and staff as well, because, because we are HBCU, the faculty and staff are also predominantly of color. Um, they're of a non-dominant um, category, whether that be you know, minority, whether that be low socioeconomic status, whether that be LGBTQ. So um, there's definitely been a huge impact that's been seen from the entire campus. And I mean, that's all campuses, right? So that's not specific to HBCUs. But of course, when you're dealing with um, communities of color, HBCUs tend to have a higher percentage of students that are low socioeconomic status. And the data shows that low socioeconomic status had a higher impact from COVID, right? Financial and both personal and health-wise. So again, we just, um, because it, these are institutions that take care of communities of color, um, pretty much in America, anything that has a negative impact is disproportionately impacted seen in those types of communities. Um, and so um, we've seen it in a lot of ways. We've seen it just in student performance. We've seen it in faculty and staff turnover and burnout. We've seen it with um, just the demand for mental health services, the demand for wellness services that has happened over the last three years, all of these things are indicators of or response to what's been happening over the last couple of years. Thank you. Um, and Jim, building on this response from Dr. Copeland, their insights about how HBCUs are working to support students, families, and communities. How does empathetic leadership come to play to create trauma-informed schools, workplaces, and organizations? I think that regardless of where you work, whether it's in an academic setting or um, a business setting, uh, publicly traded, not publicly traded, I think it's very important for leaders to have their finger on the pulse of what their people are going through and to understand what they're going through at work, what they're going through in their personal life and how different people have different experiences and react differently to things that are going on in the world. And if you're part of a marginalized community, you have a whole nother set of relentless things that you're dealing with uh, that you bring to work. You can't not help but bring it to work. And as a leader, you need to understand that and you need to be informed about that. And then not only develop programs and policies and procedures that take that into account, but also how you show up as a leader and how you show your empathy and your understanding and your um, your appreciation for what they're going through. And the only way to do that is, is for you as a leader to be trauma-informed to be empathetic and very consciously and purposefully empathetic. Not just, oh, I'm listening, but actually I'm listening and I'm doing as a, as a result. And it is immensely important for, for leaders to do that. It's a whole nother dimension that maybe 20, 30 years ago wasn't as important. Even five years ago, maybe not as important, but as we're coming out of the pandemic and then still facing all of these issues that are just not going away, we need to show up and show up for our people. And I can only imagine and in, in getting to know Dr. Copeland, it's even more intense in an academic setting because you have students who are away from home for the first time. They're dealing with all of those social issues and becoming adults and trying to figure out what they want to do with their life and dealing with all of the trauma that all the rest of us are. So I, I have a lot of empathy for the leaders at those uh, at those institutions because it takes 
that responsibility, I imagine, to a whole nother level. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can all relate to what those years in college were like of just being asked what we were majoring in. And that felt heavy enough at the time or we're thinking exactly. like, gosh, I can't wait till I'm done with finals because life will be so much easier when I don't have finals every every quarter. And uh, it, it was a lot. It absolutely was a lot. Um, to that end, building upon just that baseline level that everyone is dealing with, Dr. Copeland, we've heard a lot about these general mental health needs of young adults across the country, but there is something really distinct and devastating happening with Black students in colleges, colleges across the com- country. Much of that is linked to generational and historical traumas combined with today's social justice issues. Um, which and what of the unique needs and challenges today faced by HBCUs and other academic um, institutions can you elaborate on for us? Well, I mean, I think there's so many, um, but I would say that, no, I'm sorry, can you repeat that question? Yes. What are the unique (laughs) needs and challenges faced by HBCUs and other institutions? Um, yeah, so again, I think that the I don't I don't know that they're ever unique. I think that they're um, escalated or elevated in communities of color, right? When you're dealing with young people, and I think I think there's a problem with always uh, or things being worded as if it's unique to a, a specific group, right? Like all people need compassion. I mean, like that that's the difference. But it's meeting people where they are. So, and that space and place differs because of the communities or the backgrounds or the experiences that people have come from, right? So all of the students need a higher level of touch points for mental and behavioral health and wellness across the United States. Now, African-American students need a little bit more because again, we have a higher level of students who are of lower socioeconomic status. If they are of color, they have a higher likelihood of being negatively impacted by COVID in some way, shape, or form. So all of these things are happening everywhere. However, you just have to keep in mind that it's not so much that there's something new or special that needs to be done for HBCUs, but, but it may just be more. It means it needs a little bit more touch point. And I think HBCUs have to be a little bit careful because we are all similar, remembering that we still need to have, like, we're all, like, we, we're all Black or we're all this, you know, so we're fine, we're together. But no, if you are person-centered. So one of the things that I, I've read with regards to trauma-informed care is that another interchangeable way of wording it is person-centered care, person-centered leadership. So yes, we can make these large um, leadership pushes, but it still comes down to that individual and what that individual needs. Do we have the policies in place to meet an individual at their needs when they're struggling, whether that's a financial struggle, whether that's an academic struggle, whether that's a mental or behavioral health struggle. So again, it really is, I don't think there's anything that's specific to HBCUs. I do think that, you know, funding with regards to making sure that we have the mental health services that we need, funding with regards to increasing safety and security, because this year we've had a higher actual physical threat with the bomb threats that have been happening with HBCUs. Those, that is a little bit specific, but other than that, I think it's, it's really just making a commitment to meeting the needs of, in our case, the students and faculty and staff, wherever that may be, and in some large corporate America or corporate entity, that's meeting your 
your constituents or your consultants wherever they are and providing them the resources to, to be successful. Totally. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Michelle, curious, building off of kind of those learnings and those experiences, what policies do you see that are needed to better support workers on the front lines, teachers, health cares, professionals, social service workers, caring for the physical and mental health consequences of trauma? Especially while yeah, dealing with your own, I should say. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Copeland mentioned numerous things that Howard and other universities are doing to support students um, on the and, and the workers on the front lines at universities include not just the, the professors and the teachers and folks who see students, but, you know, folks like Dr. Copeland who are managing an, an, a rising rate of patients coming in the door with mental health needs or challenges and also juggling loud amidst the flu season and COVID season and all the other stresses that that brings. But then the definition of frontlines workers is also expanding um, to be where students might interact, the cafeteria workers, the folks that are in the dorms and the facilities managers. So everybody campus wide um, can be have advantages of being trauma informed and kind of putting in perspective what, what students are dealing with. Because increasingly we're seeing episodes of incivility or violence happening in where kids are studying eating, hanging out, and so really making sure the infrastructure and the communities around the students, around the workforce, have more resources that are trauma-aware and supportive are really important. The other thing that, that Dr. Copeland mentioned is that gap in care and access. There's huge demands for mental health services in campuses around the country, and there's a huge gap and filling them. So policies need to be very focused on how to get more telehealth, more teletherapy, more resources to students earlier. Um, and that's a huge gap and challenge. So any policy that implements support and resources for an organization to become a trauma-informed organization or bridging that gap in care, and that's general health care, but then also teletherapy and therapy is really crucial to sort of moving beyond some of the challenges we're dealing with so acutely today. May I add something, Megan? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, just to kind of piggyback off Michelle, one of the things that Howard is doing is going to the students with the resources. Okay, so it's one thing to have the resources and then, you know, like, you know, from a human resource level, you say, hey, we have um, therapy services or we, we say all these things when they're in their orientation or we tell the students like, hey, you know, you can go to the counseling center. Here's the student health center address. And then when crisis hits, they that was the last time they heard it. They have no idea where to go. They have no idea what to do. They're not in the right mind frame. So one of the things that Howard really has tried to do this year in the Office of Student Affairs is go to where the students are. So have meet and greet with leadership of various departments, student services, student health, counseling center. We also have a lot of off-site dorms. Um, because of the growing population at Howard. And so making sure that we are tabling at those offsite dorms so that they know the services that are available at Howard University. And so really being very intentional with programming to make sure that the counseling center or IVPP, which is the um, Interpartner Violence Program, um, are at these outreach things, actually putting themselves out there so that the students are always being made aware of the services that are available so that it's not them trying to remember something that happened at orientation um, when something traumatic happens. 
I think that actually segues really well into sort of like our next area, which is that intentionality and sort of proactiveness of putting yourself or your services, meeting your students where they're at, um, brings it, I think it actually leads really well into our next topic, which was um, women's safety in particular, especially around campus. Um and the discussions around that, Dr. Copeland, that's also an area of your expertise. How do you see this factoring into mental health in Black women on campus? How would trauma-informed, how would a trauma-informed lens help address the unique needs of women in this key moment? Um, so yeah, so the university, again, we have something called the inter, why, why do I always struggle with this? <laughs> um, um, inter- I had it, partner violence program. Um, inter <laughs> I'm so sorry. I usually have it. Go, go for the letters. We'll put it back in the text um, with us. <laughs> Interpartner violence program. Was it interpersonal? Um, interpersonal violence prevention program. Yes. I mean, I usually know it off the top of my head. So sorry. Anyway, but we have that program and um, the leaders within that department are very proactive about making sure that um, women know that that resource is there. We also have um, Title IX, but I would say that IVPP is really, really, really intentional about putting their services out there. They have events with young women to talk about healthy relationships, consent, um, you know, all of those things to help prevent violence um, or interpersonal violence. Um, and so that's one of the programs that we have that's specific for not just women, but people who experience um, violence within relationships. Um, there are wellness initiatives through multiple departments. The Student Health Center is doing a wellness, starting a wellness initiative. The chapel actually has like wellness Wednesdays where they do various activities, whether it's a podcast or an activity um, every week. Uh, so that's something that's put out there. And then within the Department of Student Affairs, there's also various activities. So all throughout um, the campus, they're trying to address the needs of the students. And again, I think um, trying not to pigeonhole programming is really important, right? So just making sure that we're just putting programs out there that are flexible to meeting the needs that present themselves as they present themselves, because the needs of 2022 were not the needs of 2020 or 2019, like reintegration skills and, you know, time management for students who spent two years virtual is very different than um, those programs that we had in 2019 for you know wellness and um, academic advancement look very, very, very different in 2022. So that's why it really just should be focused on who's sitting in front of you. And we can't always know what is gonna come. Like we didn't know the pandemic was gonna come, <laughs> but being capable and available to trying to figure out the resources to meet those students um, where they're at or the faculty and staff as well. Cause we can't take care of the students if we don't take care of the faculty and staff that take yeah. care of the students. I think that's like a really important message that we've, we've kind of um, implied throughout a lot of this, but it, it just doesn't, it, it needs to be reiterated over and over that it's it's also taking care of leadership and for leadership to identify 
how they're taking care of themselves in order to be able to take care of the populations of the people that they're serving. Um, and I think one of the interesting takeaways that I'm I'm sort of seeing in, in summary of what you're saying, Dr. Copeland, is, is kind of this age-old marketing and advertising and comms strategy, which is go to where your where your audience is, meeting them where they're at, um, creating a consistent message so that when that time of need comes, it's very front and center of of what the culture or what the um, organization is able to offer, the resources that are at their hand. So I think there's just a lot that that we take from that that can also apply to organizations and a lot of what um, Jim can tell us more about sort of how that's being applied. Um, so Jim, on that note, worldwide, we've seen academic institutions, organizations, and businesses take on tough issues, everything from the women's health issues that we just talked about with Dr. Copeland, um, to financial, political, social justice, and other issues. How does being a trauma-informed leader and organization take on tough issues uh, and bring a sense of inclusive support, community, and possibility to people who've experienced trauma. And actually, before I answer that or give my perspective on it, I would like to just piggyback on something you just said, which is about leaders taking care of themselves so that they can take care of their teams. It is so vitally important. that That's a loaded statement, and it comes with a lot of stuff, but it's really important. I, I practice it myself. You've got to take care of yourself. We, too, as leaders, are filled with trauma and experiencing the same things that that are maybe in different ways, but experience many of the same issues that our people are facing, perhaps differently, perhaps through a different lens, uh, perhaps some things more than others, but we too are experiencing our, our own set of issues, uh, personal life and, and work life. And it's really important that we have the ability as leaders to put that aside, to process it, deal with it, take care of yourself, but then put it aside when you go and then start to work with your teams and help them through their issues. You can't do it through your own lens but you have to take care of yourself first and and interestingly when you think about tackling some of those tougher issues uh in the workplace you know, back in the day leaders organizations brands uh, avoided tough issues and tough topics almost it was taboo to even comment on it or even acknowledge it uh for fear of backlash offending some people uh stepping into territory that maybe you didn't think you deserve to step into. And, and now as a leader, as an organization, as a brand as well, you kind of have to, you don't really have a choice. Now you don't have to comment on every single thing. You don't have to have a point of view on every single thing. You don't necessarily have to take a stand necessarily, but on the topics that are important to your people, perhaps important to you as well, important to the organization, important to the work that you're doing, you have to at least acknowledge it. And you have to acknowledge the impact that it's having on your people, acknowledge that there's different points of view and there's different triggers and there's different reactions to it and it affects people differently, uh, particularly in a, in a very diverse workforce, which is what we're all striving to, to uh, continue to evolve. You have to acknowledge it and you have to acknowledge the impact that it's having. And when appropriate, because your people think it's appropriate, perhaps take a stand or, or have it impact the work you're doing or the procedures you're putting in place or the policies that you that you uphold. Uh, can't avoid it. Silence is silence is now a statement, uh, whether we want to accept that or, or not. 
Now at Ketchum, we don't, you know, we can't comment on every single thing because then it starts to become almost just perfunctory. But we do comment on the things that we know are important to our to our people. And, and in many cases, you know, take a stand, put something into place uh, when it's appropriate. But it's tough. It's a, it's a tough part of the job. No, no doubt about it. it it's a, it's a fine line that we walk and but you have to walk it as a human. Uh, and walk it knowing that your people are human. And you you might make mistakes, you might misstep, but if you're doing it with the right purpose and the right intent, then you're you're moving along the right way. Um, To go back to one thing that you kind of mentioned, I'd love to put a question to the group here, and I, I'll let you all decide uh, among the three of you, because I know you all work closely together, who is who's best suited to answer this. But um, when it comes to uh, kind of putting the work that you've done on your own experiences to the side and meeting your your team or your students where they're at, how important is it to be the most uh, aware, socially aware, up to speed, up to date on the issue um, or educated on the issue? How important is it to have that versus acknowledging that maybe you aren't as informed or you haven't experienced an issue, but it's important to address that that group is experiencing something. Does that make sense? Like if you're not the expert, is it more important to first educate yourself or in the moment meet your people that you're serving where they're at to show that there's an awareness of something going on? And I don't know, I'll let you guys decide who who should answer that. But um, I'm just curious because we've kind of talked a lot about being trauma-informed, but sometimes there's not time to be trauma-informed in that moment that something happens. I can start and then um, Dr. Copeland and Michelle, you jump in. I think that you just have to be human about it and, and admit what you know and what you don't know and admit that you're you're learning. It's impossible to be fully informed on every topic, every issue that your people are concerned about. And I think that that would be a goal that you would never hit even if you tried. Now, as a leader, it's important to be informed about them and to have a base of knowledge and to understand you know, the, the core of the issue, but to be an expert or to even propose to be an expert would be impossible. So I think the best thing you can do as a leader is just to talk as a human, talk about what you do know and what you don't know, uh, be fully transparent about it, seek out information from your people who do know and who know more about it than you do. Uh, we we have employee groups that we we tap into all the time on various topics to to get a better understanding, not only of the topic, but probably more importantly, how they feel about the topic. That's actually even more important. And putting your own points of view aside, I, I might have a very strong point of view on something, but my point of view is not relevant. What's What's relevant is uh, what, what your people think. So I think you have to be honest, transparent, human, be comfortable not knowing everything that that takes some comfort uh and i'm you know like i'm okay with that as long as i admit it and talk about it i'm 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 good thanks yeah i think it is about not having all of this knowledge base but just if you know your people then you usually know when something is happening and you can just ask how they're doing you know, how, how are you, how are you doing? 
you know, it, it, that doesn't always necessarily make them have to, you know, divulge how they're impacted by, you know, the trauma porn that's on the internet on a daily basis or anything. It's just like, how are you? And I think that when you have um, trauma informed workplaces, um, that starts at the leadership, but it really is in practice at the managers of the staff on an individual level. You can put in place all these things on a local level, but if you have a forum addressing what happened with George Floyd, but you are been coming in late every day since it happened and your boss is still just on you because for punitive reasons, then it's all performative, right? So I think that knowing your staff um, and meeting them where they are emotionally, just check it, just a check-in. Um, you don't have to know all, all the things to make you woke, awake, and, uh, and aware. I mean, you should, but what should be the thing that is driving you is making sure that they're well. Because that may not be what's in the news. That may be something else that you don't know. That may be a sick family member. That may be, you know, just that. But when the performance is off and you know it's somebody that the performance is not normally off, which means you have to know them, then you're just, you're not addressing the performance. You're addressing the person. What's, what, what's going on? What's happening? Like, I have a person, he's always on time. He's always on time. So when he was late, I was like, what happened this morning? Because... Something had to have happened, you know, for you to, you know, because you're literally always on time. And sure enough, you know, there had been an accident, This, you know, so and it wasn't punitive. It was just that I know him well enough to know that for him to be late, something had to happen. So addressing that as opposed to the actual behaviors or the performance or the issues that are occurring. So, you know, I think it still is really important that it happens at the ground level to really address people's actual needs. And and adding to that, um, the first step of of a trauma-informed organization is actually listen. There's a five-step process that we've been educated on. Um, And so listening is, is the door opener to feeling heard, feeling connected with. And sometimes you're not going to have all of the answers. And there's specific steps that we learn in the trauma-informed process, like don't immediately go into coach mode. Don't interrupt with your story. Like there's just there's a way to be very deliberate about your listening um, that can change, you know, the whole path of, of how you might interact on a tough issue or subject that that's either on the headlines or in someone's personal life taking it over. Absolutely. The how are you doing and are you okay goes so far in this. Um, kind of to to bring us to the end of today's conversation, Michelle, can you um in a real in a kind of our our put it into action step here, um, how can colleges and other organizations become trauma-informed? What is the process? And you just mentioned one of the five steps. But if you want to bring us kind of through those steps and then and what what the first step to becoming trauma informed is, um, I think our our listeners would would love that. Well, great. Well, as we've talked today, today, we've you know all agree that these are challenging times and it is really difficult sometimes in real time to figure out what's the best way to proceed and how to how to be trauma informed is something that Ketchum we were very deliberate about realizing we didn't have the in-house expertise. So the first step is surrounding yourself with a team of folks who have the background in social work, psychology, trauma-informed change management, 
communications with vulnerable populations or victims. Having those insights and those teams around you can really help challenge your maybe normal approach or how you might traditionally follow a, a path and, and create a, a training or a resource or a tool that is really um, going to hone in on the needs of any, you know, a swath of populations and issues. So Ketchum, as we talked about, made in a commitment to become trauma-informed rolled out a, a pilot that we trained uh, 50 of our people right now. And we're going to making the commitment now to roll it out to our entire workforce. So our entire company will be a trauma-informed entity. Um, and that module is actually something we're adopting for clients across all sectors, retail, academics, uh, healthcare, other institutions. So there is an actual training module and process that can be applied, customized as needed, because all sectors have nuances and more different workforces have different challenges. Um, but that's something that you can adapt pretty quickly and easy by tapping the right experts, building the right team. And, and an academic institution has many of those resources in-house already to tap. Um, there are also ways that an organization that you might not have to do it on one full swath. You could, you know, simply uh, have core teams or institutional leadership become trauma informed and they set the stage and start modeling those best practices, um, whether it's in an academic setting or whether it's in a business or other type of organization. Just that simple act of having leaders kind of approach a meeting different, approach a campaign or program, a new benefits for the, for the students or for a company in, in a different way, sometimes bring about change. But for colleges or organizations that, that wanna um, kind of go campus-wide and might need additional support, there's increasingly there's government and foundations funding um, resources to help. For example, the US Department of Education recently funded the, or initiated the school, uh, the Project School Emergency Response to Violence or SERVE funding that's specifically available to schools to help them deal with trauma, um, you know, a traumatic event or violent event to roll out their programming um, campus-wide. Um, it's just great to see that there's greater recognition and appreciation for what a trauma-informed organization can do. Um, it's certainly needed to help mitigate the effects not only on students, but the families and the communities around college campuses were all touched by that in some way. So being deliberate about finding resources and building the right team um, and there's so many models out there um, to help organizations and individuals be trauma-informed. Um, this is a great time as we head into 2023 to really um, be deliberate about that in all of our work and all of our programming. Thank you so much, Michelle. That summarizes so well what we were here to kind of unpack today and scratch the surface of. Um, I thank you both to Ketchum's team of experts who've brought their expertise in trauma-informed leadership uh, here today, you've provided insights and best practices uh, to help organizations. And I know that our listeners um, can always follow up with you for more information on that. Uh, and a special thank you today to Dr. Copeland for sharing your insights on what it is happening at Howard and other campuses across this country. Um, it's so essential that we bring trauma-informed thinking and support to our communities in need. So I, I really thank all three of you for being here today. Thank you. Thanks Matt. for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, any closing thoughts before we before we sign off for the day? I think for me, the only closing thought is I would hope that folks who are listening have been intrigued and inspired to learn more and to think about how they themselves and how their organization can 
take the learning of being trauma-informed and weave it into their own work and with their own people, most importantly. Thank you. I think I just would want people not to be discouraged by what feels like more work to be trauma-informed and, and knowing that it, it will make a better workplace environment, um, a better, uh, less burnout, less turnover. I mean, it, it may take a little bit, feel like it takes a little bit more time, but in the long run, I think it, everybody benefits from it. That's really great. Thank you. And Michelle, anything from you? No, just appreciate the opportunity to share and learn. There's so much um, great work being done out there. It's, it's great to kind of share and highlight some of the things happening at Howard um, and look forward to continuing the conversation. As always, and we will continue that conversation here on the Provoke Media Podcast and elsewhere on Provoke, uh, always with Ketchum as well. So thank you to our sponsor today, Ketchum. Thank you to Dr. Copeland. And this has been the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Megan Kogan, and we are signing off. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.